Welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Why in Jesus' genealogy do we find such women as Tamar, who after being married twice became pregnant by prostitution and was almost burned alive for it? Join us for the start of the season of Advent with our new sermon series, Harlots in the Holy Family. Good morning and welcome to worship here at Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Question. Why in Jesus' genealogy do we find such women as Tamar? For example, she was married twice, became pregnant by prostitution, and was almost burned alive for it. Well, join us later for our sermon series, Harlots in the Holy Family, which we begin today. And now I'll share the beginning of this week's scripture in Matthew 1, verses 1 through 3a. Listen now to the word of God. An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. How many of you have had uh, genetic profiles done like 23andMe or Ancestry DNA? Several of you. Now I want to ask, this is, this is congregational participation right now. Why did you have that done? Curious. Curiosity? Oh, it was a gift? Yeah. Oh, uh, Michael says he's adopted, so he wanted to know some more. I've told you all about my genetic profile in the past. It's nothing particularly interesting. Like most white Americans, I'm basically a Western European mutt. A lot of English, a lot of Celtic roots, Scottish and Welsh, and also some French and German. My name, Grainer, is German. So how many of you have ever researched or been curious about your family's genealogy or your family tree? I think most of us. Additional reasons why, why, why that was... Why did you do that? Heritage. Do what? Heritage. Heritage. Memory, yes. And then some of the, some, also some of the reasons that we said, do what? Well, why not? <laughs> no telling what's going to fall out of that family tree if you do a little research on it. Well, again, there's nothing particularly interesting about my family tree except for one thing that was handed down to my family was a list of the names of enslaved persons that my family used to own. Not particularly proud of that part of my family's history, but I'm glad that I know about it. Because realizing that I have the same genetics that shareholder, or excuse me, slaveholders might have had reminds me that I am just as capable of that kind of evil as they were, and for that, I need to be careful. Lately, I've been listening to a book about the rise and the history of Nazi Germany, and the Nazis were obsessed with genealogy. Before anyone could be offered a marriage license, a person had to document that there were no non-Aryans, particularly no Jews, in their family tree for at least the last three generations. If you couldn't pass that, then you did not get a marriage license. If you wanted to join the SS, you had to document the purity of your family line well back into the 19th century. And since I have German ancestry, that means I have the same genetic legacy as the Nazis. Not particularly proud of that one either, but a good thing to know. 
So why are we so interested in our biological and our cultural heritage? And yes, you know, one reason, and none of you said this, but one reason is it gives us medical information that could be very helpful to, to us. But, but as your answers suggested, I think the reasons go much deeper than this. Our genetics and our genealogy help tell us who we are and, and where we came from and perhaps some idea of where we're going. They give us a sense of identity and they reveal some of the forces and the circumstances that have shaped us over the years. And as important as our genealogies are to us, genealogies were even more important in the ancient world. There are multiple genealogies in the Bible. Often we call them the begats, since in the King James Version they use this archaic word in that translation. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. Just as we do, ancient people looked to genealogies to tell them who they were and where they came from and where they might be going. Furthermore, ancient people looked at genealogies to tell them who other people were, where they came from, and where they might be going. So that's why the writer of Matthew begins his gospel, his account of the life of Jesus, with these words. An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And now, in this one sentence, Matthew has given his, his readers a wealth of information. First of all, the Greek word translated as genealogy really has a much richer meaning than the English word. It's a Greek word, but in this case, it's a, G, it's a Greek word you will have heard before. It's the word genesis. Genesis means beginning or source. It can also mean birth. You could translate this verse as an account of the genesis of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So when our English Bibles say that it's an account of the genealogy of Jesus, it means not just what we think of as his genealogy, but it's also the story of just how, how Jesus all began. What is his genesis? What is his beginning? What is his source? And it's the beginning of specifically of the birth story of Jesus. That is, it's beginning of the Christmas story as well. In this first verse, Matthew refers to Jesus as the Messiah. So here Matthew is claiming that Jesus is the long-awaited-for leader or king that the Jewish people have been waiting for and that has been foretold in Hebrew scriptures and in Jewish tradition. Then Matthew anchors the story of Jesus in the story of the history of Israel. And he does this by excuse me, specifically pointing out that Jesus is a descendant of David, the greatest king in the history of Israel, and of Abraham, the first and original Israelite, who was called by God and promised land and progeny and promised that his family would be a blessing to all the families of the world. Matthew does something else that's very curious. He also anchors the story of Jesus into the story of Israel in a second way. He does this by including in his genealogy the names of four women who were instrumental in the history of God's people. And those names were Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah, which we also know as Bathsheba. Including women was very unusual for ancient genealogies. Uh, the Gospel of Luke, for example, also has a genealogy, but in his only male names appear. What is also unusual is the particular women who Matthew includes in his genealogy. 
So think about it. If Matthew's purpose was to uh, honor the great women of Israelite history, why doesn't he include Sarah or Rebecca or Leah or Rachel? Where is Moses' sister Miriam or, or the judge Deborah? Where is Queen Esther? Why these four? Well, we're going to be exploring that question and many others during this season of Advent. And this is the first of four Sundays of Advent. During Advent, we await for and anticipate the birth of the Christ child. We wait for the coming of God into this world and all that that means for our human family. Over the four Sundays of Advent, we'll look at these four women that are included in Matthew's Gospel. And the first of these is Tamar. But again, as I said earlier, a word of warning, the sermon series is not exactly child-friendly. And some of the scriptures that we're reading are sexually explicit. That it might include sexualized violence. But, if we, but as we explore these stories, it does also then remind us why it is so important that we needed God to show up in our human history. And now I'll share from Genesis 38, 1 through 11. Listen now to the word of God. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and settled near a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He married her and went into her. She conceived and bore a son, and he named him Ur. Again she conceived and bore a son whom he named, she named Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she named him Shelah. She was in Chezib when she bore him. Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go in to your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her. Raise up offspring for your brother. But since Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, he spilled his semen on the ground whenever he went in to his brother's wife so that he would not give offspring to his brother. What he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up, for he feared that he too would die like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. In our last three sermons, we explored the life of the biblical character of Jacob. And we saw how after many years, Jacob returned to the promised land with his wives and his children and his flocks. There he was reunited with his twin brother Esau, and Jacob and his family then settled in the land. His two wives and their handmaidens gave birth to a total of 12 sons. And from these 12 sons would descend the 12 tribes of Israel. And among Jacob's son was his fourth son, Judah. So our story begins with Judah marrying a Canaanite woman. And together they have three sons, Er, Onan, and Shelah. Judah eventually finds a wife for his eldest son, Er, and her name is Tamar. Well, the text said that Er was wicked 
And as a result, the Lord put him to death. We really have no idea what Er did to ensure God's wrath. It could be simply that he died young and it was assumed that therefore he must have been evil. But regardless, after Er's death, Judah tells his second son, Onan, to marry his brother's widow and have children in his brother's name. And this was a custom called leveret marriage. And the idea was that if a man died without children, then his closest male relative was supposed to marry his widow, and any children from that union would be considered the children of the deceased man and would be the heir of the dead man's property. Well, Onan was willing to sleep with Tamar, but he had no interest in having children in his brother's name. You know, it's really possible that Onan didn't want to divide his father's estate any more than he had to. So if Er had no legal heir, then Onan only had to share the estate with his younger brother, Shelah. Well, this displeased the Lord, and so Onan was put to death as well. This would leave the youngest son, Shelah, to fulfill the obligation to his oldest brother, Er, to have children in his name. Shelah, however, is not old enough to marry. So Judah tells Tamar to go back to her father's house, and he would let her know when Shelah was grown up. Judah, however, had no intention of letting Tamar anywhere near his surviving son. And you can hardly blame him. Um, but in the ancient world, a two-time widow was considered bad luck. It was even thought that she might even have an evil spirit that was killing off her husbands. Well, so far, we've only heard Judah's voice. We really have no, no idea what Er or Sheila thought, but only a little bit of what Onan thought. Furthermore, we have no idea what Tamar was thinking. Because you see, in the ancient world, the thoughts and wishes of the woman was not considered important or pertinent to the situation. And so you kind of want to ask yourself, did Tamar want to marry Er? Did she love him? Did she grieve him? Did she have any desire whatsoever to marry Onan? And what does she think about Onan's willingness to sleep with her but not impregnate her? Was being sent back to her father's house then a disappointment? Maybe it was a relief. We really just have no idea what is going on in Tamar's mind. Up until now, she has been given no voice, but she must have realized what a very precarious position in which she had been left. You see, one, excuse me, one, purpose, one purpose of leveret marriage was so that the dead man's name would not be blotted out because he had no children. But another purpose was to protect the widow. Because with no husband and no children, the widow was left without any kind of support or protection. And so when a man married his brother's widow, he was not only then supposed to raise children in his brother's name, he was also there to offer support and protection to the woman. For now, Tamar can go back to her father's house, but when, when he dies, she's not going to have a lot of options. Her society didn't really give her any options. Think about what it would be like in an ancient society to be a woman. She's no longer a virgin, but neither is she a wife, and neither is she a mother. And in her, in her father's house, she basically had no future. One writer said this to say, she is living in an in-between time. In her father's household, but belonging to Judah's household, a widow who is not free to marry, a woman obligated to have children with no legitimate way to conceive them. 
So for now, she has no power and therefore no choices. And she then therefore must wait for the Lord. We'll continue now in Genesis 38, verses 12 through 23. Listen now to the word of God. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah's time of mourning was over, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she put off her widow's garments, put on a veil, wrapped herself up, and sat down at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. She saw that Shelah was grown up, yet she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought her to be a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He went over to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will give you a kid from the flock. And she said, Only if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and the staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she got up and went away. Taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the kid by his friend, the Adulamite, to recover the pledge from the woman, he could not find her. He asked the townspeople, Where is the temple prostitute who was at Enneum by the wayside? But they said, No prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Moreover, the townspeople said, no prostitute has been here. Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, otherwise we will be laughed at, you see. I sent this kid and you could not find her. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Tamar decides to get herself unstuck. She knows that more than enough time has passed since for Sheila to grow up and for Judah to have called for her. So she concocts a daringly creative and masterful plan. Tamar has to be very smart to make this work and very brave. She must be familiar with human nature and particularly with Judah's nature. She has to know all the ins and outs of the sheep shearing seasons and the routes that the men would take to travel to the sheep shearing events. She has to think about exactly when she would change out of her widow's clothes, where she would wait for Judah, what she should ask for in payment. And she must keep him from recognizing her since she's probably only going to get one shot at this. And she also has to coordinate this all then with her own fertility cycle. Well, all goes according to plan. And in reality, Tamar has no interest in the goat kid that Judah offers. She wants the staff and the signet. The signet would be a type of a personal seal, for example, that would have been worn on a cord and kept around the neck. And it would, it would positively identify the owner. Later, when Judah's friend tries to find her in order to give her the kid and retrieve Judah's belongings, she's nowhere to be found. 
And so Judah, not wanting to be a laughingstock, decides just to drop the matter. And let us continue in Genesis 38, verses 24 through 26. Listen now to the word of God. About three months later, Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the whore. Moreover, she is pregnant as a result of whoredom. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. It was the owner of these who made me pregnant. And she said, Take note, please, whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah acknowledged them and said, She is more in the right than I am, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not lie with her again. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So fast forward three months and Judah finds out that Tamar is pregnant. And he is enraged. He is so enraged that he orders her to be burned alive. Now I think this is, this is shocking to us that Judah would order a pregnant woman to be burned alive. And it's also shocking to us that other people seem to be willing to follow through with it. In fact, I would even want to ask, why does he even care that much? But this is a patriarchal, honor-based society. And Tamar has brought dishonor to Judah's family. But we know that it is really Judah who has dishonored himself. And now Tamar must trust Judah to do the right thing. As one writer says, in the end, she had to depend on the honesty and honor of a man who had proven himself to be dishonest and dishonorable. Tamar is truly at risk for being killed over a sexual indiscretion, but she refuses to give in to shame. She sends word to Judah that she is pregnant by the man who owns these things, and then she produces that staff and that cord and that signet. And finally, Judah finds his honor when he recognizes his belongings and he proclaims, she is more in the right than I am since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. Judah acknowledges that Tamar is the one who made sure that the law was upheld. Leverett Marriage said that the widow was supposed to marry the dead man's closest male relative. It was usually a brother, but a father could also count as a close relative. Well, Tamar ends up giving birth to twin sons, therefore doubling her future security. Judah does deserve some credit for admitting his guilt and releasing Tamar. And this does illustrate some moral development on his part. We'll see it later on in the book of Genesis when the story of Joseph uh, comes. It follows right after this. We see in that story that Judah takes great pains to protect his youngest brother Benjamin when Judah and his other brothers thought Benjamin was in danger. So Judah grows up some here. But in Jewish tradition, it is Tamar who is considered the hero of this story. She is the one who ends up being loyal to the memory of her dead husband, Ur. She is the one who's able to leverage what right she does have in that society to do the right thing. Tamar is also part of a long tradition in ancient mythology. She plays the part of the trickster. Now, in many societies, persons without power are honored by getting the better of those with power by way of trickery. And this, this was something that, that was esteemed in these societies. 
And in these stories, the powerless person uses their brains, their daring, and their courage to bring about justice. And we've seen the trickster motif play out so far just in these last few weeks when we were talking about Jacob. We saw how Jacob and Rebekah, his mother, conspired to trick the blind Isaac so that he blessed Jacob instead of his brother Esau. We've seen how Laban tricks the trickster by substituting his daughter Leah for Rachel in the dark on Jacob's wedding night. And then Jacob's son Judah is also tricked in the dark when he does not recognize Tamar. Tamar is also a great illustration of the great and famous serenity prayer that is attributed to the theologian Reinhold Niebuhr. Its most famous lines read, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. For a very long season, Tamar has, was forced to accept her lack of power, and she just had to wait for the Lord. And she had to have great wisdom to figure out what she could do to change her situation. And then she had to exhibit great courage to implement her plan. The Virgin Mary had to wait as well. After saying yes to the angel Gabriel and accepting this, the dishonor that came with getting pregnant out of wedlock, she had to wait nine months to see if God would make it right and restore her honor. And Advent is a season of waiting for all of us. We wait for justice. We wait for God to come and to make things right. We wait for that long-expected Jesus to appear. And finding serenity in our seasons of waiting does not come quickly or easily. And we may or may not ever get that opportunity to make a change. But I think God offers us both wisdom and courage in our waiting. As we quoted last week, everything will be all right in the end. If it is not all right, it is not the end. This saying is quoted in the movie, The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. But I did a little research this week, and the original source of the quote is disputed. Nevertheless, it is a motto that is worthy of Advent. Because Advent is when God assures us that in the end, everything will be all right. Because in the end, the Word becomes flesh and dwells among us. Come, Lord Jesus, we are waiting. Amen. Now, let us receive this benediction. In this next week, wait for the Lord in the things that we cannot change. In this next week, stay strong in the Lord to change the things we can. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope today's service was a blessing to you. Join us every Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11 a.m. Next Sunday, we continue to celebrate the season of Advent by exploring Jesus' female ancestors in our sermon series, Harlots in the Holy Family. You can always access our services through our website, tumcd.org, our Facebook page, our YouTube channel, and our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. If you like what you're hearing, you can also support our ministry with your gift through our website, tumcd.org. God bless you in the week ahead, and we'll see you Sunday 
at Trinity United Methodist Church. <laughs>